podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. What's your earliest memory of somebody who was good at life? That's very difficult. So I don't know if this is really my first answer or if it's really somebody who's good at life, but I remember my aunt is a vet who lives near Newmarket and she is a horse pathologist. Wow. So she's quite amazing if you go and see her now. I remember we went to see her a few years ago and she came to pick me and my, my now wife up from the station and she said, hang on a minute, I've just got to go to something. And we pulled up at some stables kind of racing kind of place and there was a big kind of uh, sort of barn type thing with a van parked across it and we parked somewhere down and she was just popping in to have a quick look at a horse autopsy no (laughs) (laughs) so she herself is very good at life and she lives in a in a in a in a house in in a little village in Newmarket and she currently I think specializes in rabbits as well and one of the things from that was her she gets people with interesting rabbit pathologies to send her frozen dead rabbits quite a lot. So I think her letterbox is quite, quite <laughs> problematic. But anyway, the person I was thinking of was not her. It was her next-door neighbour, uh, John, who I remember very kind of early age going on a visit to me. And he was a, I guess he was an engineer. He kind of built, I think he was like, he must have done basically small-scale manufacturing in a large shed in the back of his um, cottage in a small town in in Newmarket. And I just remember going in and going to visit him and he just had this this shed full of um, stuff, you know, machines and things. And I remember he was he was injection molding. Yep. I remember and he would, you know, he you had this thing with these granules and then he would hand you this thing yep. that that he'd produced. Uh, and he used to do all sorts of things. He would have you'd go there and my my aunt kept uh, goats was one of her things, rare breed goats. And he'd built her a, a goat, like, trap, a kind of cart. So me and my little sister, aged, whatever, six, seven, nice. like, there is a picture of us riding along behind the goat. <laughs> so I definitely remember, you know, him being somebody who seemed to have a really interesting yeah. way of, you know, working. He was also very deaf, which meant you all the conversations with him were... were hilarious and irritating <laughs> because he would just have to talk very, very loudly to him. And later in life, he had a, he used to get, you know, he'd have like vintage cars that he would, yeah. not not fancy vintage cars, but just like really, really old, you know, like. Yeah, Morris Minor or something. Or, yeah, or even like um, like Model T, that kind of thing. Right. Oh, okay, he would, really. he would do it. And then he got into flying, and I never did this, but he would fly from Newmarket across to visit my parents in 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 Wales so he wow. would you know as a day and you always kind of assume that's what we'd get him in the end and I think he didn't he just you know he died a few years ago but not in a horrific plane not crash. in a plane crash but he always seemed Ball like somebody planes. who had a had a had an interesting way of looking at the world how does that when you look at their life now do you think of them as were they eccentric were they just exercising what they loved did they just not care about what other people yeah were doing? I think it was I think it was that I think they were they were people who were you know they are my, my aunt's still very much alive, and the people who are are kind of passionate and interested and wanting to do mm. their own thing. And I suppose there's an element of not 
I don't think they would be kind of actively. They weren't, you know, quirky or weird or anything. They weren't. They weren't like. They're not self-consciously eccentric. Sure, but just their way of looking at the world is different. I remember on another trip again, sitting with 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 my wife in the uh, my aunt's conservatory, and uh, which was full of kind of stuff. She was definitely somebody who liked liked stuff. And there was this beautiful kind of um, about this size kind of sculpture of a horse, you know, kind of slightly abstract sculpture of a horse. We asked about it, and she said, oh, that's a dried horse fetus. Oh, my God. Do you understand what a fetus was at the time? Yeah, yeah this is, yeah, I was... I oh, was, this is no, your adult? No, this is an adult. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Jeez. <laughs> that is... Unusual. But, you know, not like wacky eccentric, just like it was a beautiful thing. You know, it was a very, you know, if you if you encountered these things and somebody was like, oh, we, you know, we dry them and we have them about the place. It's probably a little stand. You know, it was an interesting thing. It's weird not to draw a parallel with, with you, but um, I don't, this podcast isn't meant to be like a big spoon feeding of people's backgrounds. I really hate doing someone's bio. So when I um, came, when, when we uh, kind of came across each other online, you were running a podcast music thing. A blog. Sorry, podcasts weren't invented. Oh, this was what talking about? this was in the blog era, the blog. in the, the yeah. two thousand and four, two thousand and five. We've just been talking about back podcasts in the day a lot yeah. before this, but <laughs> everything's through that prism. This was when blogs were going to revolutionise was... media, and everyone's going to get rich from them. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then I remember uh, loads of other things happened in your life, but I remember starting to see um, you cre- create a modular. Yeah, uh, so parts, right? So I, I in the in two thousand and four, five, six, seven, eight, probably wrote this blog called Music Thing. That was it was blogs were were sort of starting at that time, and there were things like um, Gizmodo and Engadget. Yeah, these really you know good, interestingly written American blogs where they talked about gadgets with a kind of enthusiasm and a passion that was quite different from the way technology was written. It was always written about in a very kind of, um, here is the new type of camera. It's got this many pixels or whatever. Yeah. They would write about it in a much more cultural, much more kind of interesting way. Yeah, yeah. And um, the way music gear was written about at that stage yeah. was really kind of, it was this idea that if you bought a £3,000 guitar with a £500 pedal, it would somehow sound great and you'd have good tone. Uh, and I thought this was was nonsense. And it was also the same time when computer music was pretty much perfect. You know, you you could get endless kind of plugins, and you could record, you know, four hundred tracks in a kind of cheap mm. PC you could get. So if you were actually serious about making interesting music and you had good ideas, yeah, you could do it for free essentially, and yeah. that was great. But if you were interested in gear and interested in stuff and interested in stories, you could be interested in that stuff. And what I was I was very keen to not get those two things confused. So right. I was not pretending that this music is somehow this gear is somehow going to make you amazingly talented and interesting. But it's interesting and it's cool and it's nice and there's no harm in owning it or not owning it or lusting after it or thinking yeah. I love that. And also the stories around it. So it used to have a kind of sidebar on it where it would have like Timberland Week or Kate Bush Week or Aphex Twin Week, yeah. where I would just kind of go and dig into how they made their their records and what they yeah. what they 
you know, it was a bit like that kind of, you know, the classic albums kind of behind the music kind of thing. Yeah. But just trying to kind of celebrate it. So that was the, the music thing blog. And I ran that for about four, four or five years. And then I got a, a job that kept me very busy and I stopped, stopped yes. doing that. Then uh, sort of towards probably 2000, probably 2007, 2008, um, got interested in kind of electronics. And electronics is a kind of something that you could do yourself. And this was when the sort of maker scene was happening. So Make Magazine uh, must have launched probably, I'd imagine, 2007, 2008, when um, Arduino, which is this little kind of electronic circuit board that that's, makes it really easy to make things flash and move and do yeah. interesting programming, that, that came out. And was that some, a bit like a breadboard type thing as well? Because you plug stuff into it. Yeah, you can do that. It's, it's, very, it's, it's a really easy... Um, way to do things with electronics that 10 years ago would have been very, very difficult. So around yeah. this time, electronics was getting much, much Raspberry easier. Raspberry Pi then as Raspberry well? Raspberry Pi was a bit later on, but it's that, sort of, that sort of era. The other thing that was happening at the same time was that the Chinese kind of supply chain was opening up. Right. So you got to a point where you could order a pile of circuit boards, Yeah. which in the past, so there, there's always been a kind of synthesizer DIY scene. Back to the 70s, really. Sure. Um, where people would do this. But it was really Was pretty... EMS that? EMS, well, EMS wasn't DIY. It was a proper company. But yeah, EMS, the British synthesizer company, was... I mean, I think at that era, in the 70s, it really was a technical thing that you needed professionals to do it. Sure. But I think during the 70s, it became a kind of hobbyist thing. And there were kind of hobbyist magazines... And people would make circuit boards by, like, putting tape on it or drawing on it with a kind of sharpie and then putting it in a vat of acid and burning away the copper and then drilling all the holes individually in it. And I was not going to do any of that (laughs) stuff. That wasn't something that interested me in the least. Right. Um, But in the the kind of – by 2010, 2011, you start to have access to the whole – supply chain in China. So you yep. could you could get half a dozen proper professional high quality circuit boards yep. made for 20, 30, 40 pounds. You know, it was a very, very right. easy, cheap thing to do. The software to design them was pretty evolved and and you could get free trial versions of it. There were companies like there's a company called Mauser, which is in Texas, I believe where you send them a list of components and they'll send it back to you and you can order like three resistors and two resistors and a chip and this thing. Yeah. And they will package it all and send it back to you and the prices are kind of reasonable. And, and the internet made all of that operation work and it also meant that all the information about how to do this, yeah. ideas, was all suddenly available and, and, and it, it, was, it was something that you could do without being an engineer, without being specialist in that field. And how did you find out about it? I suppose I'd found, I don't know how, I, I found out through blogs. So I would have yeah. found out, I would have probably found out through about Make Magazine through Boing Boing, which was a big blog at the time. And yeah. Mark Fraunfelder was connected to the two. I wrote a piece for Make Magazine very early on about like a Lego guitar somebody had made, where they'd seen music thing and, and crossover into that. Um, that then very quickly led you to things like Arduino. Yeah. And then I started making guitar pedals. And guitar pedals are very easy to make because they're very simple. Sure. They've only got six or seven components in them. Sure. Yeah, they're um, very light. <laughs> and, yeah, there's not much in them. And But 
the problem is there's not much in them. And there's also big communities around that. So if you go sure. and look at DIYstompboxes.com, there is a whole community and the, the way those communities work where they will share how to make it, then they will have people sharing the things they've made. So you look at this thread of photos and you're like, there are just people making this stuff and that looks quite cool and interesting. Yeah. So I kind of learned that. That was fine, but you do kind of run out. There's only so many Fuzzboxes you can make. That's right, yeah, um, yeah. And so around that time, um, I went to a modular synth kind of event in London. Which one? So this was in Vauxhall and it was uh, post-modular, yep. David post-modular, David, yeah. did a thing in Crawford. Vauxhall. And I went with, I think from memory, I went with Daniel Pemberton. Yeah. Um, I went with Ben Goldacre. Yeah. Uh, and I, who's a big modular synth guy. Is he really? Yeah, and always has been. Uh, always been for a long time before yeah. me. Yeah. And Mark Pilkington, who runs Strange Tractor, and who's also a big synth guy. So these people I knew, and somehow, I can't remember how we worked out together, we all went together to this thing. Nice. And I remember going and thinking, I'm not going to get suckered into this. This is a mugs game. It's too expensive and silly. And I went to the thing and you see all these things, you're like, this is quite interesting and clever. And this was where that scene was just beginning to get really interesting. So Before London Modular set up? London, way before London Modular, yeah. yeah. You had people like, uh, so Make Noise, which is this company in Asheville, yeah. just made really interesting, quirky, weird designs. And I just remember looking at these things and going, what does this do? What would it yeah. What, what what does it mean? And it looks very different from the kind of lab equipment where you can kind of see, mm. dial your oscillator to 5,000 hertz, whatever. This, you know, they had a module called a maths, which is very popular, which is just a bunch of knobs and a bunch of kind of lightning bolts yeah. from the graphics. And you just think, what? What's how in, would what's this out? work? How would it exactly like that? Yeah. And then there's a company called ADAC Systems from Portugal, I actually met a few weeks ago. They had a module that was took a Wii nunchuck controller and plugged that in. You're like, this is it's quite an interesting weird. So you kind of move the nunchuck yeah, controller yeah. and it's voltages like got a gyroscope come out of it. In the nunchuck. Yeah, that, exactly that sort yeah. of thing. And I, but I was sort of the thing. I was like, this is fine. And then some sort of people played, and they just played this kind of drone for like about four or five minutes. And I remember, I remember Daniel going, it'd be quite nice if the note changed. <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, it might be slightly more musically interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then we all went for went for kind of brunch afterwards. And I remember um, I, I remember Ben saying, you know, what's really good about it is it's really tidy. It's all just in a box. You don't need to set anything up. You just come on, you flick it. And he was like writing a book at the time. You just come on, you flick it on and you can just play for like 10 minutes yeah. and then flick it off and you go away. And yeah. I was like, well, that does sound quite good. And I think he was also... You could do this. You could do that DIY stuff. People would love it. You know, get into that. And I was like, okay, all right. And so I then bought a little. Was he into it at this point himself? Yeah, Ben had been into it for a long time. He was. He had a pretty big setup of kind of the old sort of Dupfer and the stuff that was around then. Sure. Uh, Daniel has always absolutely rejected it because he's actually a professional musician, and the last thing he needs is stupid boxes with with wires going out of it. but so I then thought, okay, you know, I'll get into this, bought a couple of them. And very quickly, it's a really interesting, it's like a, you know, the way, um, well, actually podcast is a really good example. Podcast was a platform that was created by Apple. And they said, we will do the distribution and the marketing 
you just need to produce the audio files. Yeah. And that suddenly meant that something that was previously very difficult yeah. became very easy. Yeah. Uh, and modular sensor are a bit like that. If you've got an electronics idea, the system gives you the power and the actual power, the electricity is quite a difficult, but you know, when you're, when you're doing anything else, just having a power supply, yeah. you can't plug things into the mains, it's complicated and difficult. Yeah. You don't need an entire box. When you're making guitar pedals, you need six sides. Yeah. And modular sensor, you just need a sheet of metal or a sheet of plastic or whatever. There's a kind of simple rule book of what it does. The sound comes in, the sound comes out, or voltages come out. Um, and there's a, there was kind of emerging a sort of scene, well, there is a scene of people who are interested, so people can kind of understand what you're buying. Yeah. And it wasn't completely overserved the way guitar pedals were. Yes. You know, you really couldn't, Imagine a new way of making a distortion box that would somehow set the world alight. Although people yeah. still do in that scene. So I started experimenting with it. So I, you know, trying to make little things for myself um, and that were interesting. You know, essentially putting Arduinos behind the panels, this kind of thing. You'd make these little little circuits that could do yeah. something, um, and all the information was out there. You know, this was the thing. If you wanted to learn how to do something, there were so many bits of information out there so there was you know endless arduino forums that can help you with programming if you're doing something like that endless community there's a fantastic community called electro music which is nothing to do with electro music yeah uh, but is a is a kind of old school synth diy forum that has a whole sort of sub scene in it called uh, lunetta which comes from a guy whose first name i've forgotten it's not ray lunetta it's that's terrible, I forgot his name. But he's a, a guy who was a sort of avant-garde musician in California in the 70s. And he made these very, very simple electronic circuits using very cheap standard chips. And they're these kind of interesting, kind of randomized and very kind of primitive circuits. So you can kind of bolt together a bunch of very cheap, you know, like 50p yeah. chips with bits of wire and connect them up to a 9-volt battery and produce really interesting, kind of complicated, weird kind of patterns. So it's, it's CV. It's like it's with, with that, it was generating sound, and then you might. Oh, that was that was not with Eurorack. That was like a very kind of interesting, weird, different sort of scene, that kind of lunatic like scene. Book is it? Not book? not a booklet. This this was this is purely a DIY thing. Nobody's ever professionally done it. Um, was it from the same kind of like you know same California era, era as, yeah. as, as as so he so. Um, Terrible, I can't remember his name. Mr. Lynetta, he was a, a, I think he was a a percussionist and he was around California in the 70s, I think. Still alive, I think he's, he's you know, he was a teacher and lots of things. But he had this particular kind of aesthetic of doing, and it was rediscovered on this kind of electro music forum, as I understand. And you had this gentle bleeding between kind of circuit bending where you take a gadget and fiddle with it and designing your own things. And suddenly... And there's a, a wonderful book by Nicholas Collins called Handmade Electronic Music. Oh, wow. That kind of makes all these connections. And you read it and you go, this is not something for engineers. This is something for interesting tinkering. Right. So what, how did, what was that serving in you then? Because you were done a lot of writing up until that point. For right? me, it's kind of making things. You know, I, was, I, was, was, I loved the idea of making something physical and tangible. Where did that sprout out from, though? Because I think, I think I, I would have always, I would have, I'd never really done electronics 
before. Do you collected synthesizers and bits? I'd had, I'd certainly, so when I was at school, I was in kind of bands. Yeah. What kind of music? And aspired to, it was kind of, you know, indie bands and sort of like, you know, a bit sort of gothy kind of. Oh, yeah. Not, not good music. Um, but that, so, you know, you're in bands that were never, never great bands, but you, you, played and you did and i like bought an ms10 for like 50 quid in a in a music shop did you but i then i think no, i think i bought it for 75 and sold it to my mate for 50 quid <laughs> no, not a, not a wise MS10 investment sounds great yeah yeah i mean it would have been a nice thing to have knocking about but so i was kind of interested in that world <laughs> but then i think completely left that behind until probably about 2002 or something um when i got married when I got engaged yeah my wife got an engagement ring as traditional I got a nice um telecaster I hadn't had a guitar oh nice I've got I think I hadn't had a guitar you know a decent guitar you know for yeah. years yeah so that sort of got me back into that kind of music year and that then led Good on wife. To, to doing to doing music <laughs> thing um so doing the kind of electronics doing that sort of you know I was able to start making things that were kind of interesting or useful so I made like a, I made myself a spring reverb. Yeah. So you could buy a spring reverb, but I was like, it'd be interesting to kind of learn how to make one. So you read up, and there's there's a fantastic paper by a guy who's like, I am a proper electrical engineer. Everyone else making spring reverbs is doing it wrong. This is how you should do it. Because the insulation uh, with spring reverb is a pain in the bum, isn't it? The whole thing's a is a weird, interesting circuit because it is using real connections and real physical. Real, you know, it's mm. not like programming. No. Um, but so I made one from his circuit and, you know, we tried to manipulate a bit to make it work for Eurorack, but it, you know, and worked really nicely. And so I would go on the forum and say, oh, I've made this circuit and here's the, the schematic or whatever. And people would go, oh, that's interesting. And people still take that and, and will say, oh, I'm building a Tombola circuit because that was my username on that forum at the time. <laughs> and then uh, by and, about... So I'm going to jump in. How did you make the leap? Yeah, to circuits because when you say circuit, there's a lot of people who are going to go. Well, I understand computers, I understand music on my computer, but that is a big. It's old the name. Arduino. The, the Arduino that got you. The Arduino in. absolutely is the gateway because the Arduino. You, you. I mean, I bought like a a kit that was the board and a little breadboard. So the breadboard where you press the components and you don't need to do any soldering. You try them out, yeah. And it was an enormous barrier for me. The idea of soldering. I was yes. like, God, I can't do soldering. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that seemed terrible. And then you'd see these circuits that had things like transistors in them. And you're yeah. like, God, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do something like that. <laughs> but you know, and the the problem with the Arduino is there's not actually anything useful to do with it. You flash some lights. It's kind of that. And then I I think I made one where it was like a you know, it was a box with some knobs like a kind of sequencer. Yeah. But the thing it was sequencing was a kind of bleepy noise in the Arduino, you know. Uh. <laughs> It's not, not yeah. that much to it. It's kind of interesting to do. And then you try and – so trying to think of interesting things. Or you, I made like a box with an L- LCD in it that would tell you when the next bus was going from the bus stop. And that's kind of cool and nice thing to do. It doesn't quite work and it crashes every time. It's got <laughs> action. No, it's not. Could you have left it at a bus stop? You could have left it in your hallway with the idea, so you could then see when the bus was coming. Oh, it would have been nice, you know. It was bus. a good, good idea, um, but you know, then then <laughs> they introduced smartphones, so you didn't really need that. <laughs> um, 
But definitely that was the leap. So so with the right. Arduino, you suddenly had like LEDs and stuff. Yeah. And then I think reading handmade electronic music. Yeah. Where you're like, this is not that weird or difficult. You can do things that yeah. are interesting and are yeah. unexpected. And then I bought probably a kit to make a guitar pedal that you then soldered. So then you're in the world of circuit boards and making things, but everything's prepared for you. Yes. And then you go, okay, well then can I make a, can I, you know, you you then say, somebody will say, okay, I've got a circuit here and you can make it on this stuff called perf board, which is horrible, but you can do things. Yeah. And I remember doing several of those and it just didn't work. And you're just like, this is not all that much fun really. But then you make one that works, you're like, this oh is amazing. My God. <laughs> um, and doing sort of really sort of circuit bending things. I remember buying a little chip that was a guitar delay pedal. Yeah. And then going, well, what Would that if be like I, a bucket brigade thing? That sort of thing, yeah. yeah. You then say, well, what if I wire that up to this this feedback up to another pedal? Yeah. And then you press it and the whole thing freaks out. And you're yeah. like, oh, that's, you know, so you're like, so you, it's a very gradual transition from I'm reading Make Magazine. Yes. To then you're sort of making circuits. But then the, the, the interesting next step is then go, well, actually designing something that other people can can use. Yeah. And so the, the, that, that thing with being able to access China yeah. meant I realized that I could design and I had no interest in like making kits or selling these things. You're I right. I, I had a job that paid me a decent wage. Yeah. I wasn't going to sit there soldering up 25 of these things and trying to sell them for 150 quid and then you're like... You know, that was not something that not was ever, ever. I just wasn't interested in doing no, it. It didn't seem like an, an appealing part of the process. Yeah. So I designed this circuit, which was a kind of random sequencer um, that I called a Turing machine to give it a name. It's not a Turing machine. If you're a computer scientist, I have to meet them at trade shows and they explain that it's not a Turing machine. No, it's not. Um, but it, it's a it's a kind of random sequence. So essentially, at the time, I was listening to lots of Steve Reich and Philip Glass records. Yeah, and I liked endless repeating loops that changed gradually over time. Yes, this was a box to do that. Yeah, um, and so I designed this circuit from you know looking at other circuits that were trying to do a similar thing. By this stage, I was getting to the point where I could read a schematic. So you see this like page with lots of little lines and stuff in it. Yeah. And at some point, that goes from being, what on earth is that, to being able to read it and go, oh, that's interesting. And I remember doing that with so Don Buchler, who's the early 70s kind of mad genius of, of synthesizer, who was friends with the Merry Pranksters, who they've found modules that he built that have been restored and they've literally found LSD painted onto the panel. Um, that's crazy. He, he designed these incredible circuits in the in the seventies and in early seventies, and you can find all the schematics from on board, and they're handwritten, not by him, but by the sort of he was bought by CBS, and that, but they're proper professional schematics. And I remember the first point where I was able to look at one of these and go, "Oh, I can see what he's done there, what he's doing, and that's yeah. really clever, yeah, and really interesting." And I can see I'm not going to do that because that's too big and complicated, yeah. But that makes me think of a simple way to do a simpler thing that I can do. And really, yeah. that was an amazing, It's, I guess, like when you learn to read when you're a child and you suddenly can read. I think I remember reading Green Eggs and Ham for the first time and going, oh, wow. I can yeah, you can do that with language. Yeah. yeah. So this, this was just like that. 
So I designed this thing and I was like, I don't want to make these, but I'd like to get it out there. So my idea, which came from kind of open source movement and that Make magazine and seeing what people were doing, I said, I will publish this as an open source thing. Um, so anyone can take it, they can build it themselves, they can sell it. If they modify it, they have to share their work. Um, and uh, But otherwise, you're free to do whatever you want with it. But you have to credit me, yeah. you, and you have to share your work. And you can't use my name or product name because that's kind of owned by me. Yeah. So you can't just say it's a Tom Whitwell Turing machine uh, or a music thing modular Turing machine. I mean, you can. I don't have an army of lawyers that's going to come and get you, but within the culture and the scene, that is not okay. Yes. Whereas taking it and developing it, as other people have done, is okay. Yes. So you publish it with an open source license. My, my initial idea was you publish it with an open source license, you then have the circuit board files you can send to China, and for 20 quid they'll send you back a few boards. Yes. And you have the the parts which you can send to um, Mauser in in Texas. Quick and question. send about the bits. Could you then like do the Moog ladder filter, get them to make you one and send it back? Yes. Yeah, because there's no, there's no copyright on circuits, right? No, you can completely do that. But you have to, to do that, you have to design the circuit board. Yes. Um, which you can do, and that is fine. I mean, yeah. it's perfectly possible to do that. So you can design it, you get the parts, and that's what, that's exactly what DIY is. I mean, in fact, literally a couple of weeks ago, just before Christmas, I was watching a video on um, Instagram. Have you seen this Instagram account called Soundgas? I know the guys I've, you know I've guys bought and sold. Exactly. So yeah. I was watching their account, and they had – it was either a mini Moog or it was one of their um, – those Grampian reverbs they're doing. I know, yeah. They're you expensive now. They're they? expensive, yeah. On, but 1,500 Yeah, something. But they're, they're, you know, on a mini Moog, it's got the overdrive yep. where, where you Loop. feed it back. Yeah. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's like, I wonder if I can just make one of those. Yeah. So literally, over a weekend, there's the mini Moog schematic. Where'd you find it? Just Google There it. are dozens of them. And they, they've changed over time, but you pick one. And you, you go through one. it and you go... Okay, that's got those those transistors there. They look like they're pretty much standard transistors. That transistor there, because they're all different. You can't buy 1970s transistors now. Sure. They've got slightly different names. You have to do a bit of work to figure it out. Yeah. These ones have got high HFE, which is a particular, I think they've got more gain than other ones. So you go, okay, that's got an HFE of about 500. Let's look at transistors that... I've got a gain of about 500 on the roughly same. Okay. And then you've got all the other components around, which is like resistors and capacitors, quite straightforward. I take that, I put that into Eagle, which is the software that I use to make circuit boards. You sort of draw out the circuit, the, the sort of schematic. Will it tell you if it works? No. I mean, there's bits of simulation that you can, it will tell you if you've got something really obvious, like a short circuit. Sure. It'll tell you if, like, you've got two pins that are next to each other that are not actually joined. Okay. But it won't fix all of it i then <laughs> spent the thing i spent the longest doing was figuring out the part for the little incandescent light bulb that is on the front of a mini move what got to get it right glows. yeah i don't want an led this is like of course, I want man. It to look exactly that um so i then um <laughs> but this is like a weekend i think i mean maybe it was a weekend and a bit 
like a Monday night or something. You've got the circuit. Once the circuit's in place, you sort of, it was a very simple module. It's like, it's actually two ins, two outs, and the outs are just connected together. It's just like, um, they just connected to the same thing so that you can patch feedback into it. Oh, oh, so oh literally, from itself, of course. Yeah, literally, yeah. And then one sort of high in and one low in, and those were actually copied from my Fender guitar amp. So a Fender Princeton, and it's got a low input and a high input. I was like, how do they do that? And you look at it, it's this really clever little circuit. Yeah. That's to do with the switches on the sock. So you've got a, a high and a low, but if you plug two in together, they're both high. Which right. is what you want. So if you've got to plug two guitars in, they'll both be the yeah. same level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I've got this circuit right. It's pretty simple. And it's just a volume knob for, for overdrive. For, for the overdrive. Got the circuit, and then you go into you, you've got a circuit view, which is like a diagram. And then you go into the board view, which is literally the circuit board, how it's laid out. So you've got, you move the components around, you draw a frame around sure. the edge of how big it is, and then you draw the wires between it to, to connect it all up. And it, it pulls over what's called an air wire. So if you've got a component here, a component here, it'll have a like straight beige wire between them, yep. like line. Yep. And then your job is to draw a proper line that doesn't cross any other ones and is either on the top or the bottom of the board. Right, and right. sometimes crosses between them. And it's a very, very pleasing kind of hypnotic process. <laughs> that once, you, once you can do it, once you've learned the process, yeah. it's really enjoyable. You just Where do you go in your – this is what I'm really interested in as yeah. well. What, what does this adventure serve to you? Um, is it – do you go into that state of like unthinking – so for that, when you're doing that, yeah. that part of it is absolutely a kind of hypnotic. It's like, you know, I don't play chess or do anything like that, but it's like, it's a very sort of difficult but simple sort of mechanical process. So you, you're absolutely just, you're trying to, you're trying to make these connections. Yeah. And you're also trying to make it aesthetically pleasing at the same time. So you can, oh. there is a, for me, Nobody else. I mean, somebody might look at it and go. I mean, I've I've looked back at ones I did previously, and I'm like, and actually, in the software, there's a button that does it for you. Oh, so there is an auto root button. Nice that you can press, and it does it in a very ugly. <laughs> and so, so now I've learned this, and this is I've learned over over like five or six years, and it is a real skill that I have that I can do, and it's very very pleasing and i always do it and i was talking to um emily who runs um mutable instruments and she was saying exactly the same she does she works in the office yeah and then but she does routing at home she just like you like, just sit on the sofa that. and you just go into this zone and then you get everything nearly right and you're going it's not right it's not going to kill all kill all. and you go back and you go okay <laughs> mm, like that what are you doing so with that, with that mini move one was doing. So that then took it was very quick. Took about an hour to route it, and then I was like, and then I made a front panel out of a circuit board. All right, I've done it. And then I send it. I send them both off to China, send the parts off to to Mauser to get the bits, and then oh, so Mauser sends you the bits. They send me the parts. And China what? sends me the the circuit boards, and you assemble. And then I assemble it. And when you're making in bulk you send the circuit boards and the components to China and they assemble it. Got it. But that costs quite a lot more expensive and takes longer, so I just get them sent to me. Can I just quickly get a price point on this? Because I'm just curious to see. Yeah, that. so for that for that module, yeah. um, probably the, 
the circuit boards would have I would have bought five, and they were probably about ten, fifteen quid for five. Five because they're quite small. It's almost sure. like half height. The panel slightly bigger. That was maybe. Fifteen pounds for five, yeah, something like that. Sure. And then the shipping um, would be fifteen, twenty pounds because it's coming by DHL yeah. or something. Because it's too annoying to wait for the other way around. So that arrives, and then the components for that would have been I don't know about five or ten pounds or something. Okay. I mean, the, the little, as you can imagine, the incandescent light and the little holder is a bit more, possibly less than that actually. Um, so about tenner each. Probably that, yeah. Plus. Quite a lot of time and eight years to learn how to do it. <laughs> it's like the old Picasso thing. It's yeah, like, of course. You're just drawing that on a skit on a napkin. How can you charge four thousand pounds? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Um, but so and, and that was really, really pleasing because then two weeks later, you have this thing, and it had literally gone from me looking at Instagram video to this thing, and then you do a little bit of debugging and it actually works. You always build it, and it doesn't quite work, and then you go. Oh, actually, no, no, I just, I've got it. You know, you just missed a circuit, almost a joint or something, and you get it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And then plugged it in, and it sounds really, really good. Really? And the little incandescent light flashes beautifully. It, in, yeah, exactly. Right. It literally looks exactly like the anyway. video by, by Sound Guys. It started from. And it's a really nice little thing, you know, so and it cool. definitely, and I, I built two of them, and then you can kind of feed them back into each other. Uh, and that was a very pleasing, very short. Process. Yeah. It does obviously help if you have to design the circuit, which you know, <laughs> that's right. You know, it's much easier if you don't have to design the circuit yourself because uh, you're just ripping off something that somebody else did. Are you, are you selling those overdrives? Um, I'll, I'll, I will talk to Steve, who runs Thonk, um, and see yeah. whether he wants it. I mean, that's the other part of the story. Was come back to 2012. I designed this thing. The idea was boards to China, components to Mouser. And then that one had an acrylic laser cut front panel. So you send that to your local laser cutting person, and there are loads of those around. And the idea was this was kind of distributed manufacturing. I put out the yeah. in the idea, other people can manufacture themselves, and it is the future of manufacturing. Yeah. About six hours after I posted that up on the forum, uh, Steve Grimley-Taylor, who now runs Thonk, uh, which is a sort of DIY parts you know he describes it as diy record label so nice. he does the distribution the manufacturing for people like me who design circuits but he popped up in the in the forum and said this sequence of thing that tom's design looks cool i will do a group buy for the parts nice and i was like wow that's interesting that wasn't quite how i imagined it would work but that makes it much easier i can see if people don't want that yeah and that process i think then led pretty much directly to thonk being founded you know a few months later you know he lost his job and he thought this is something i want to do full time and he you know just turned that into a business that now employs five or six people in brighton and brilliant sells tens of thousands of kits every year not wow. just of mine but sure. lots of different people's so can i buy that like assembly made from him then so you can buy the kit from him yeah uh and then there's there's a much more kind of not underground, there's a small community of people who have made personal careers out of manufacturing this stuff. Right. So there's a guy called Gaz Luke in Bristol who's really good at doing this stuff. So just before Christmas, we got a, you know, I got contacted by an extremely famous pop star saying, oh, I really like this stuff you're doing. Can I buy some? 
from the like. modern era? A currently active, extremely famous okay. pop star. Um, pop star is deliberately misleading, but a famous, <laughs> famous person. Right. It wasn't Aphex Twin. Um, you know, he contacted me and said, oh, this is great. Can I buy some of these? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you buy kits from things like, oh, I don't really know how to do soldering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I buy practically two of everything? So then I ring up Steve and we then get a small army of makers who then get paid to solder this thing together and then we sell them the whole bunch finished off. So wow. if, you, if you're somebody who can't do DIY, you obviously can. There are ways of buying it. Yeah. And also there are people who've taken that circuit and modified it and shared their changes. And yeah. they've done that. There's a guy, um, I'm terrible at puns. I'm almost kind of pun blind. <laughs> and there was a guy, so it's called the Turing Machine, there was somebody uh, in, I think, in Portland, I think. I'm not sure. Some, some, somebody in a, in a small synth company said, uh, using this license, we're going to make a slightly miniaturized version of it. So it's a little bit smaller. It takes a less space in your rack. And I was like, cool, that's great. That's, that's the idea. Um, and he's called it Alan. Um, and for a long time, I looked at it, it as like, it's so funny that he's called his module Alan. And it took me a while to realize that's because it's Alan Turing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but so that kind of thing. And then there's another, another guy who's taken it and done a much more advanced, you know, added loads of features to it called permutation. I think I was going to buy one done, of these. Yeah, I was lots like, oh. of people have done different, different versions of it. Yeah. Uh, and there are kind of software interpretations of it as well. So wow, people have really? taken that, that basic. Because the idea is kind of a, a, a sort of electronic process and an interface. That's so the way the kind of knob works with it. Yeah, yeah. So you can do that in software. You can do it in in hardware. You can do whatever. And so yeah. it's been very interesting to see how that's kind of gone out into the world. That's interesting, that's isn't it? So is it the um, – do you kind of sit there thinking it's the idea is the most important thing for me to spend time on? Because everything else is fractionalized, isn't it? You can get it all made and distributed. It's its own – ecosystem in a way it's yeah just... it's the manufacturer it's the it's the idea and the design. and the design so i mean i'm very very lucky because i've been able to do the bit i enjoy yeah obviously the the financial rewards of that are less you know i get get very generous royalties from from thonk and I, it's a very nice lucrative hobby yeah to have um it wouldn't particularly pay my pay my life if that was all my revenue but I guess if I was doing it full time it would be a different thing yeah um, but it's been very nice for me to be able to say I will do this part of the process yeah and somebody else will do another part of the process and I feel very kind of and I feel, feel very pleased and I was going to say blessed but it's a silly, silly kind of word no, no, yeah. because particularly because the person who happened to put his hand up at the beginning of yeah. that process Steve has set up a brilliant business that is run brilliantly, yeah. has fantastic customer service, has, you know, hires people and gives them good jobs in Brighton. Is yeah. A, you know, is a, is a, and that makes me very, very proud just to have been a little tiny fractional part of that story. Yeah. So that has been a very, very pleasing part of it. And, you know, there are lots of ways that this could have gone awry. You know, lots of ways that I could have, tried to structure the business differently or have needed to structure the business differently that would have been very frustrating and difficult. I could have, you know, partnered up with somebody who'd just been bad. Yeah. You know, there have been, there have been occasions where 
people have contacted me and said, can we work together? And I'd be like, sure, that sounds fine, but didn't quite get around to doing it. They turned out to not be good people. Yeah. Um, and I was very glad to have avoided that. How do you make those decisions? Because you, you're saying it's fortuitous or blessed. Do you think you've, have you had an active thinking part in that, though? I mean, I think a lot of it is luck, I think, you yeah. know, but I think um, certainly, you know, my relationship with Steve, I immediately got on with him. Do you go on gut instinct then a lot with people? I think so, yeah. I think I'm not, I think I'm quite good at not um, seeing, not seeing so good where there isn't good, I suppose. I don't, I, I don't think I'm over, I'm trying to Generous? think of the word. Yeah, over, <laughs> or over, over sort of, I don't think I'm too prone to wishful thinking. I don't look at something and think, oh, this seems a bit wonky, this seems a bit wonky, this seems a bit wonky, but I'm, I'm sure, sure the whole thing will be fine. <laughs> exactly. And I don't... But you're think, not the opposite either. You're not no, too... No, I'm not, I'm not super sort of negative about things, but I think I will often be... I will often think, what is the worst case scenario and how bad would that be? Yeah. And it may be that, you know, I also do feel like, well, maybe I should have completely leapt into this eight years ago and when I look at you know there's a wonderful or I look at what Steve's accomplished or there's a wonderful video of make noises operations out in Asheville where they've got a big building in town they employ you know dozens of people they're manufacturing there they have a, a big chunky operation that looks like a fundamentally a very good thing mm. and I kind of think well I didn't maybe I should have gone and done that and, and had that bigger ambition and done it um you know, but I didn't, and I don't. It's not like an enormous worry. In life. <laughs> you know, I just think you know. I do feel like maybe I've been, you know, too lazy, or you kind of too, you know, I, I didn't make that big big jump. But it's not like it's a big regret that is hanging over me. I, I feel like I've been incredibly lucky to have done this, um, and also being able to kind of steer. You know, I could stop doing it tomorrow yeah and that would be fine but i do at the same time feel very kind of driven to carry on doing it. i feel kind of competitive i feel like i yeah. want to i want to come up with something that is original and different yeah um and you know something like that that the, the overdrive thing i was describing yeah it's clearly a kind of very quick kind of throwaway yeah. idea but very nobody effective. Else, well, nobody else is actually doing it. And no. It's quite different. And so it's it's trying to it, – I think the best idea of those ones where it is a pure idea that makes sense and is distinctive and isn't necessarily too much hard work. Yeah. Because I think that's where and, – and That's the engineer into, then, isn't it? But it's Going also coming back, back into – you know, it's when you look at – when I look at the music I like, yeah. it's the same thing. Like I've always thought one of the most kind of admiral bands ever is Talking Heads because – they're incredibly good at what they do, but they're not like super widdly widdly guitar players who are all about nice. you know expertise and and that. But they uh, an extraordinary high level of kind of their output is incredible. It um, is, and that that sense of the kind of it's not doing something that is um, that is you know punk for the sake of being his three chords now form a band. But it's not something that is, you know, prog rock. Look at That's our, right. look at our guitar solos. I think yeah. that that sweet spot between the two, or also the, you know, the the thing you get from Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies, where yeah. a lot of that sense is 
stop pissing about. Yeah. Stop polishing it. Yeah. I love. I mean, there's some in there where you just imagine him in the studio with you two going. Just do a U two E one with a big chorus because people <laughs> like that. How do I say that? Oh, read this card. Yeah. Oh, I see. You know, do a cliche. Oh, what a clever idea. Maybe we should do a big chorus with a rig rousing guitar solo part in it. Go for it, guys. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I love that that notion of the kind of the the sort of you know you're 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 creating something with just enough skill. Pull it off, yeah. <laughs> none, none more, <laughs> none less. Because if you didn't have it, you couldn't do it. And it, it, it's it's interesting in that that goes into sort of the work I do as well now, which is which is around kind of product development, working with companies, helping them develop new things. And I don't know if you've ever read stuff about the lean startup, which is one of the kind of cult business books. We've got it out there. But the notion of that is all about your only job is to learn the next. Bit. Yes. And you have to do just enough to learn the next bit. To get you to that Anything moment. more than that is a waste of time. Yeah. Anything less than that is a failure. Yeah. Um, and I think that discipline of just getting... Build the next brick. You know, as lazy as you can possibly be, but not more lazy than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's an interesting thing that Oblique Strategies about, you know, getting out of your own way. Mm. So being a writer and being a listener. Yeah. Um, and... Because if you're used to sitting down and assembling stuff or liking that process, yeah, when you're especially when you're writing music as well, you can um, actually you're the thing that's failing it. Like, yeah, you're endlessly, tirelessly working on something. Yeah, it's the thing that's taking it away from what was really, really great. And I've definitely got stuck in processes like that with the with the electronic stuff. I've had things where I will maybe fall in love with the idea of the thing. Yeah, a sort of physical object, but it's not actually something that's really useful. It's yeah. not actually something that's really distinctive. But then you get so into it, yeah. and then you get into that wonderful kind of hypnotic process of designing something, and then you connect it up and program it, and it works, and you're like, wow, this is great. But then you're like, but actually, I don't actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm not sure I actually want this thing. So, and the, the most pleasing things I've often found are those things that are a little bit quicker than that. Yeah. It's a very quickly going from this is the idea to this is the thing that works. Yeah. Without too much of that pissing about in the middle. So I, do, I don't know if this is connected. I'm going to try and make this leap, right? So I remember I bought a mini Moog and I bought, um, it was absolutely messed up. It, yeah. 42 errors basically. Gave it to Kent Spong. He fixed it mm. for me. He did a really great job. Um, and he also showed me inside it, which yeah. blew my mind. Yeah. I was like, this stuff is super cheap, right? All yeah. of this stuff. This is badly done here. Yeah. It's, you know, it was all that just wiggly silver yeah. on green and stuff. Yeah. Um, but it was amazing. And then I remember I got it back and it was um, not to fetishize it in any way, but there is a link to kind of like fetishizing things. It was on my desk and I remember I'd only ever seen it in VST form. Yeah. And now it was physically mine. Yeah. And I had this wave of sedation. Yeah. I, like, I don't need to do anything anymore like, yeah i've got it yeah and um almost like i didn't cry <laughs> it could have happened if i had a drink or something and and then i remember I started to use it and play with it and i remember thinking it's just does a couple of things really really well yeah. and then it went onto my rack yeah and then i probably didn't use it for about a year yeah and um i've been through this process of functionalizing everything and getting the stuff that i really really love coming back to yeah. and back to and back to um and but that was an important stage for me to go through, I think. Yeah. And and get 
do it, get it out of my system. And did you then sell it? No, I still got it. You still got it. I don't think I could ever sell that. No, or I think to rate I think or... it's really interesting. I mean, I I think that that thing about the relationship with objects is so interesting, and it, it is like, you know, I bought a Nagra tape recorder. Oh which yeah, is those incredibly beautiful, beautiful things that we use for film. Was that in um, the the um, Fincher one? It's similar vibe to the Sony, isn't it? Yeah, this. But this is yeah, this is the kind of the, silver the metal, silver and... yeah, real to real thing, and beautiful, um, yeah. absolutely beautiful objects. Yeah, and thousands can, right now. Can, no, they're not. They're about five, six hundred pounds. Oh really? I thought um, because there was a lot of them used in film. Got it. Recording. There's a guy who's out in like near Pinewood or somewhere. Yeah, who's the guy who keeps restores them and maintains them. and restores them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can use it and you make tape loops with it. And it's oh, kind of man, fun. I've got to get one. <laughs> but, but, and they're, they're, again, they are made in Switzerland. Right. And you open them and they are absolutely extraordinary inside. You know, it is like a Swiss clock of, yeah. of 1970s electronics. And they have, you can put a shitload of nine... D cell batteries in them and it weighs a ton. They can be then battery powered because obviously that's what they're used for. Um, but that is another. It's a. It's an object that is just a very pleasing, happy object. I suppose yeah. it's like what's her name and sparking joy. You know the. You know the tidying up with Marie Kondo. Oh yeah. So Marie Kondo's she thing likes... is you look through and what are the objects that spark joy? Sure, keep them. Uh, keep those the... other ones. And yeah. I think this stuff, the kind of gear fetishism. Yeah. Is very much about that, and it's and I don't think we need to pretend that it's anything other than that. Yeah, you know, I bought I my closest. Thing, I do keep thinking about buying a, a mini Moog to have that same same kind of vibe. But the the closest thing I bought was I bought a Wurlitzer oh. EP two hundred, which again was something I remember. You know, seeing them and obviously hearing them on Sony Records, and then I was in a in a shop in New York yeah. years ago that had one. Really, and I remember going up and saying, <laughs> "You made it difficult for yourself." No, no I didn't buy that. One. <laughs> oh right, <laughs> I just I went up and said, "You know, can I have a go on this?" And yeah. they were like, "Yeah, sure." Clunk, and I didn't yeah. know how you turn it on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, oh, okay. And then you just touch it, and you're like, "Oh my god, that yeah. really is the sound. That is the that totally. is the thing." Um, and really wanted to buy one. And eventually, found it. I put it in Greenwich. It was fine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but that was like the same. You buy that, and you have something that just is such a pleasing. It really you know, is. thing, and you can go and play it every so often. You don't, it's not like it's a functional thing that you're using, yeah. But it is a beautiful thing to have around, um, yeah. And I think, you know, there shouldn't be any shame in that, really. No, no. It's I, I'm basically interested in who I'm satisfying in my head, in my memory. Hmm. So what, 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 Ben? At what point? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, because there, there was a. If I go back into like, I um, didn't get into electronic music heavily until. Music has the right to children. Came right, out. yeah. And um, I was like, "What is that?" It was yeah. like a, just a legato hive thing. Yeah. And uh, I was like, "That is incredible and beautiful." And it had this kind of like, um, it's like a, a Polaroid in music. Yeah. And I've just always had this obsession with stuff that feels like it's been recorded in a certain type of room. So you've or... got all the MIDI verbs now, have you? All the MIDI verbs. All those. Is it a Alesis MIDI verb that is what that sort of era of. Yeah, electronic music. I don't know. I'm not certain it's that what they use. I use all those kind of really early, cheap reverbs that have a very, very distinctive. Yeah, t- kind of muddy sort of 
that that to me is what the sound of those those yes. sort that that sort of era of cheap bedroomy yeah you know, electronic music that was all using that sort of stuff. Well, I got obsessed with tape loops. Yeah. So I, um, Evans and the Super Echoes and oh, these yeah. kind of yeah. other weird ones. Obviously the Roland stuff. Then a lot of Japanese stuff. Yeah. Um, weird little bits all over um bucket break, brigade delays mm. stuff that like when you actually turned up to maximum this high pitch wheel yes where yeah. i was like where it's because it's just a circuit that's over yeah. kind of stuff. yeah um and then um and then into simulations of real world environments so the speakerphone one oh by, yes yes same yeah. people who do yeah, a, uh, yeah the stuff. um what's that word the uh convolution reverbs convolution reverbs yeah. of yeah. like and everything from like old toys and stuff they yeah. sampled yeah. And you just layer all that kind of stuff, and yeah, and then tape uh, emulations and things. I yeah. bought a Revox. Oh, um, wow, yeah. I, it was uh, from a guy who uh, used to be opposite the BBC. Is it the White Sea? Oh, you know? fantastic. Yeah. And he used to service all the Revoxes, yeah. like the yeah. 77 or 70 or something. Uh, never really got it working. Uh, <laughs> usual thing, uh, lots of big dreams. And then, um, but yeah, it's like. Um, endlessly trying to search for a sound that just it's just the most simple sound or a note or a chord yeah. but it's something about that thing that yeah. takes you back to a place yeah. and I'm interested into who uh, at what point that person will be satisfied if, if ever yeah someone said to me the other day um we're always going back to uh when you really kind of after about 10 years of writing music you basically just stick at one point and that's normally about 14 15 Right, or yes. something, yeah. something like that. I mean, this is obviously yeah. anecdote. Everyone's just kind of—it's not yeah. properly scientifically proven or anything. Yeah. But um, I'm just curious to see kind of like why people take certain turns, uh, like especially when you meet some of these engineers, right? Yeah. So the, uh, there's a, a brilliant question. I remember being put in my place by an engineer years ago. I think um, do you know Rob Keeble? I know the name. He does AM synth. Oh yes, yeah. He's just been hired by Behringer, I think, to do the new ARP. Yeah, wow. amazing. <laughs> But it was someone like a Rob who'd been doing it. Do the new art. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, he's a... Uh, um, not like I did the new mini <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But they said something. I said, oh, what would be your dream synth? And they turned around and said, oh, well, you've got to remember that a, um, an engineer is all about efficiency as well, to your point. Right, yeah. So it's not actually about having like endless all this crap. Well, it's like Don Buckler could never understand why people were so interested in his stuff from the 70s. Like, it's wrong. Right, yeah. And he, he came back and did this uh, booklet 200E series, yeah. which was, a lot of it was very digital, very complex, very different kind of effect. Yeah. And I think he could never really understand why people were going on about this, like, 1970s stuff. Yeah. Like, why do you want that? It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't work. It's got weird glitches in the sine wave, or it's got, you know. And, yeah. And it was just fundamentally wrong. Yeah. Um. I think that's why I'm very much not an engineer. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, with that with that minimo thing, I, I got it and looked at what it was doing on an oscilloscope. I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea whether the the one in I whether my circuit's wrong, whether the one in the minimo sounds like that. Yeah, but it's great, and I yeah. definitely want it. And I built two, and they did the same thing. So oh, it's, it wasn't. A, yeah, that's amazing. I want yeah. one now, but. Yeah, it's interesting. These these people, and it must have been. I was going to ask you: Is it, it was it interesting to as you're developing now equipments to be um, circulated to the home users, 
the kind of the prosumer kind of yeah. thing, and then also to professional musicians. Like you said, Dan Pemberton, right? Yeah. So um, uh, Stu interviewed Dan uh, yeah. for his podcast, and I was really interested to say that he was never really taught. He just kind of found his own way through music and all yeah. that kind of thing and can't read music. And um, and you said they were professional musician. Yeah. And it's kind of like, actually, in the, in the world of educated professional musicians, even though his output is incredible, yeah. he hasn't followed a professional musician path. But it's funny, the example of him, and I know Daniel quite well, and he, I've been with him when he's recording. Yeah. And I have, in all my fields of work, never seen an operation as professional as that. You know, my definition of oh, wow. professional, because it is so extraordinary. When I went to see him when he was doing... Um, that Beatles film over the summer. The, yesterday. Um, yesterday. So he did sound for that, and he was recreating, um, they, they re-record uh, Hey Jude at the end. They did this com- completely kind of comically overblown version of Hey Jude as the last song of the soundtrack. And I went to see him when he was at Abbey Road recording Brass. And so you go into the, into the control room, and he's there, with this enormous kind of ring binder full of the score and all the cues and everything. He's got one guy operating. He didn't actually have the film. Sometimes they have the film yes. there. Yes. You, sometimes you have the director of the film there. You've got the tape guy. You've got the guy doing the desk. Um, and he would be like, right, Q73. And then the, the eight incredible professional session brass players inside and the conductor are like right and then they roll the backing tape and they play it and then he goes uh right number you know bar six the trombone just a little bit uh, down on that one roll tape back play it again Good, yep, right, on to 97. Wow. And then you had all this stuff in, in that that moment with the with the um uh with the brass players where there was a whole kind of to and fro between him and the conductor, I think it was the conductor, about the brass players can play a certain amount of volume and level, and then they're just knackered or their throats hurt, whatever it is. So it was all about structuring the exact structure of the recording session to make sure they weren't over blasting them at one point and just sitting there with this incredible just slick sure professional machine delivery his ears just going it's like this and like this and i saw another one who's recording three guitarists session guitarists um and they they literally had a pile of kind of weird like Spanish Mexican ukuleles or whatever, and they go and pick them out, and they'd be like, and they'd be like, just a little bit more on this one. <laughs> okay, on to the next one. Wow. Oh, this is amazing. So, so, so for me, that that literally in in all the endeavours, you know, and, and compared with other professionals, and like the way the Times newsroom works on deadline is another kind of interesting, you know, professional machine. But nothing I've ever seen is quite like. That's a real auteur, isn't he, in that sense? Yeah, well, it's just, I think it's also, it's not, it's not so much the, I am an artistic genius. It is a a professional machine making the thing to a very, very high professional standard. Was he sample gathering then? No, no, the whole thing is then properly done live. Like a lot, you know. That's the thing that surprised me as well. And, you know, the film I saw all the guitar stuff on was... Was a 
film that came out and I saw it on the plane. You know, it's a proper, yeah, proper Hollywood film, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's not a big, big, it's not like yeah. Spider-Man. Um, Into the Spider-Verse. Into the Spider-Verse or yeah. something like that. And that, again, was recorded. Air Studios, that was big, enormous. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was fantastic. That was the, the digital, or the uh, manipulation. The stuff, yeah, yeah. But, no, I think, I think you know, the, that, that's, again, it's, it's one of the last vestiges of real proper budget professionalism in music, I think. It's, you yeah. know, it's, it's the place where they can, I'd imagine in a film budget, having 60 string players for an evening in Air Studios is yeah. fine. That. And I remember on the podcast, he was, um, he said, Oh, I did these recordings of this squeaky door <laughs> in his hotel room. Yeah. And he was like, just squeaking, squeaking this door back and forth because there's really unusual timbre yeah. to it. We- well, that's it. Again, we, then, we then do the brass and then we go out into the studio and he's recording background noise from Hammond Organ for about half an hour. Yeah. And then on that yesterday, there's also there's one track on that which he recorded on his iPhone. Really, that's in the film. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the people on Gear Sluts <laughs> heard about that, that no. would not be keen. No. That's right. <laughs> I've taken. Uh, I've, I think we've gone over. We've gone over. <laughs> Do you know what? I always end on a question. Okay. And I normally work my way through there, but I've, it's been so interesting just listening <laughs> to how this has, has gone. I, I wanted to just quickly talk about um, like your relationship with death. Um, okay. Like, do you have one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> think I, about it. I. I do think about it, and I am extremely, um, I guess, fatalistic. I, I'm the way I feel now, and I have no idea how I will feel at different stages in my life. Is very kind of. It's not. It's something I think about, but don't really kind of worry about. And I yeah. think I. I feel very again, very kind of blessed. I don't. I don't have kind of regrets in my life. If I look around, if yeah. I if I dropped dead tomorrow, I would have done things in my life that I'm proud of. I've got two children that I'm very proud of. I've got you know a happy family that I'm proud of, and I don't look at it going, my destiny will be taken away from me. There is so much I have to do. At the same time, I'm certainly not looking for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would be very unfortunate. I'd be very disappointed if that was to happen. <laughs> but I'm not. I, I feel like I don't have any. I don't have any belief that there's any kind of afterlife or anything. I think that's the the, the end. Is you know, it's just yeah. that's the the game is up, and it would be, you know, a shame and stuff. But it, I, I feel like it's it's very kind of, you know, I, I don't I don't I don't worry about it. But I am kind of you know, aware of it. And I kind of think of it as something that is obviously going to, and I, I suppose the real core of it as well is thinking that for the person who dies, it's, fine. it's like you're dead. Yeah. And I think obviously for the people, it's the people who are left behind. Left, yeah. very, so, you know, so I'd be very, you know, when I think about the people I love and people who are close to me, that would be very, you know, I think about that. Yeah. But for me, I'm like, you know, if you don't have regrets, you know, fears of it, I think it's like, yeah, yeah, very. And you're happy with the quality of your life in terms of you enjoy what you spend your time on? Very much so. You know, I, like I said, I do feel incredibly, I constantly feel very, very kind of, like I said, blessed about six times. It's ridiculous. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't in any way feel fortunate. somebody has blessed me. Fortunate. It's exactly what it is. I feel very, very fortunate because a big yeah. chunk of it is simply luck. Yeah. A certain amount of it is making sensible decisions yeah. um, and 
choosing you know choosing a good partner in life everyone says is a very good thing to do completely and I've certainly done that yeah Uh, and having random good luck with you know cell mutations and things you know nothing bad like that has ever has ever happened to me I fell off my bike and broke my collarbone once and that was fine they put it back together and you know that at the moment having you know they do say but I've always been reasonably positive in my outlook but being the age I am have a happy secure family a happy secure life I have a day job that I really really enjoy Mm. and it's constantly surprising interesting I work with nice people um, and I have a hobby that is surprising and interesting and is profitable unlike most hobbies yeah Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that you know monetized it it. couldn't (laughs) really really you know I am extremely fortunate as you said I think it's interesting when you said um, something I was thinking about when you were talking about what you could have done had you gone a certain path with the synth production thing. Yeah. It was like that um, poem, is it if, I think, it goes, uh, success and failure, treat those two imposters just the same. Yes. Yeah. I get a lot of comfort from that phrase. Yeah. It's like kind of actually, whatever well, you're excited or sad about, it's... The other great one I think in love is William Goldman, uh, the scriptwriter, who said uh, in Hollywood... He was a very, very, he did like Chinatown and things. Oh, yeah, love And that. he said, in he wrote this wonderful book, which name I can't remember, but he says, if I said no to everything I said yes to and said yes to everything I said no to, it would have ended up pretty much the same. Love that. And he says, in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. No. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth in that, in that, you know, the idea that, the idea that people who succeed have made yeah. better decisions yeah. is pretty feeble evidence for that the people yeah. who've succeeded really well tend to have been very lucky yeah and but then i suppose the other thing in music is you do you do encounter these people who do seem almost supernaturally talented yeah so when i think of someone like when you think of the the, the two examples are always prince's entire output well not entire output but large chunks of his output just so extraordinarily his writing skilled. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard there's that album he put out last year which is a piano and a microphone recorded in 1983 no. and it's literally him sat at a piano jamming jamming and the first song on it is what only can only describe sounding like amazing kind of deep house music really? that he's somehow doing in 1983 he then there's a bit where he basically plays bits of um Purple Rain is just kind of working out. Yeah. And it's just absolutely true. And then the other example is the notion of Kate Bush writing The Man with the Child in His Eyes, age 13. You're like, yeah. That, that is, to me, such an extraordinary... Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't believe in anything supernatural, but there's something quite extraordinary about... A lot of that. It. That gift just descending yes. on... And when you see people like that, or when you see, you know... You know, you listen to Felicuti records and you know, just the idea of that beaming in that thing seems yeah. does seem quite kind of extraordinary. Yeah. Um, yeah, that reminds me obviously of Talking Heads, very influential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, that's one of those great stories is the idea of Talking Heads as this kind of slightly jangly yeah. New York post-punk band uh, going into a hotel room and Brian Eno saying, I've got this record you should listen to. <laughs> and it's Aphrodisiac by... Um, by Pelicuti, yeah. And then going, we can do something with that. We can do that. <laughs> 
Oh, that's been great. Thank you so much okay. for coming in. I oh. really appreciate it. Okay, brilliant. Cheers.